Welcome to The Hype Within, exploring journeys of authentic leadership and growth. On the show, tech leaders will share their stories of developing their leadership skills and challenges they faced along the way. You'll learn about their approaches to self-reflection and personal growth and how they've been able to build a foundation of authenticity that has propelled them to success. I'm your host, Hannah Jakover, B2B marketing leader turned leadership and executive coach. Are you ready to get hyped up? Let's dive in. Hey, leaders, welcome back to The Hype Within. I am excited to have another amazing marketing leader on with us today, Kathleen Booth, who is the SVP of Marketing and Member Experience at Pavilion. Hey, Kathleen, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing so well. I'm really happy to have you on the show. Obviously, I know of all the great work that you're doing over at Pavilion. So I'm excited for you to share both your leadership journey and also hopefully we can hear a little bit more about Pavilion and and how that weaves into obviously the development of some amazing leaders out there. I'm excited. Great. Well, how about we start with just a brief intro of yourself, your journey, and maybe also how you would define your leadership style. Sure. So I, as you said, my name is Kathleen Booth. I'm SVP of marketing and member experience at Pavilion. So basically what that means is I manage the teams that all have to do with revenue and growth. And I came to Pavilion because I was a member for three years before I joined the company. So it's been really fun going from being essentially a customer to being on the team and really great to be able to do marketing for a product that I love and and have deeply experienced as a customer. This is really a first for me and I'm enjoying it a lot. And I guess, you know, my background is in marketing. As you said, I owned an agency for 11 years and sold that in 2017 and have been in-house at a variety of different B2B tech companies since then. And gosh, my leadership style, you know, I like to think at least that it's all about giving my team clear direction, but then as much autonomy as I can. I try to hire people who are grownups, you know, and who have a sense of ownership and then give them the freedom to run with that. And I think when you have clear goals and expectations and autonomy, there's a lot you can accomplish. That being said, sometimes people need more direction and coaching. And I hope at least that I'm a person who's there for them in those times. And then overriding all of that, I think the biggest thing is that I just believe so strongly in the concept of radical candor. I read Kim Scott's book and I'm all in and I try really hard at least to care deeply and challenge directly as she's famous for saying in the book and to be as honest as possible because I feel like I know that's what I would want for myself. You know, I'm somebody who's interested in always growing and learning and becoming better and we all have room to do that. And the only way to really do that well is if people are candid in their feedback to you. So that's what I try to deliver to my teams that I lead. That's fantastic. I think it's a very popular and very practical leadership style that just sort of naturally embodies, you know, the values of like empathy and vulnerability and transparency as well. So I'm curious because a lot of people always say like, everyone, you know, it's a fantastic book. Everybody loves that book. When you read that book, did you find yourself in a different quadrant than you are now, like the ruinous empathy quadrant or the obnoxious aggression quadrant? It's a great question. And I think, I mean, I do feel like as a personality, I've always been someone who's 
for the most part, what you see is what you get. Having said that though, you know, there are definitely some conversations that are harder to have than others. And I think that there have been times in my career when I have tended towards ruinous empathy. I think Mm -hmm. when I was a business owner in the, in the early days, it took me a while to really hit my stride when it came to giving difficult feedback and, and actually firing people. I never liked firing people. I still don't like firing people, but I actually have come to recognize and truly believe that if somebody isn't excelling in a role, it's the best thing for them to be let go fast because every day that somebody who isn't successful has to come into work and do a job that they know on some level they're not excelling at, that's a source of anxiety and frustration and unhappiness. And so, uh, you know, it may sound self-serving, but I really do believe, and you know, this, this assumes that you've tried to coach that person and tried to really help Mm -hmm. them overcome their challenges. But if you do those things and they're simply not right, if it's a bad fit, I've really come to terms with the notion that it is the right and kind thing to do to let them go. And so that's helped me overcome what used to be terribly ruinous empathy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. It is the right thing to do. And it's still hard. It's still hard. Nobody likes to do it. But it's just like when you have an emotion or you have something that you need to say to somebody and you don't say it and it just like festers and festers and then you just like blow up one day. You know, it's very similar to that where that the performance and everything that goes along with that, the resentment of that person or from that person will just like one day it will get worse and worse and worse and blow up and will have so much impact on the rest of the team morale and the culture. So I think it is doing everyone such a service to move people in the right direction especially after, like you said, having gone through rounds of coaching and trying to get them on the right path, but then realizing, okay, it's just not a good fit and that's okay too. Yeah. I think that's one of the hardest lessons to learn as you develop as a professional is how to have those hard conversations. And it's interesting, like I said, it took me a while, but I also find in a lot of the people that I manage, they can have a hard time. Like I had a conversation just today where somebody came to me and said, you know, they had a sort of a an awkward Slack exchange with someone that was somewhat public. And there was another instance where just I heard feedback on somebody and my husband actually taught me this phrase. It's super goofy. And my when I used to own my company, we, we did this and people teased me about it all the time. But I ask my team to have what's called a carefrontation, which really literally means like, go talk to that person, confront them directly, not mm-hmm. in an aggressive way, but in a caring way, thus carefrontation, because you care about the relationship, you care about building a strong bond and the ability to communicate with them. Like it's it's only fair to that person if you go to them directly and tell them these things. And if you can't solve it, I will then come and help you. But before I step into the situation, I'm gonna require you to have this conversation. And not only am I gonna require it, but I'm gonna hold you accountable to coming back to me and telling me how the conversation went afterwards. And it's funny, people tend to react kind of nervously, like, oh, I don't really want to talk about that. But almost every single time it's happens, the person has come back and said, yeah, I had the conversation. It was great. We had a really good discussion. All is well now. Yes, that is such an amazing philosophy. Carefrontation. I love that so much. (laughs) I think it also lends to just the growth that we can all do when it comes to communication and especially conflict. And even just realizing like conflict doesn't have to be bad. Like conflict doesn't inherently have to mean like things are gonna blow up and be negative 
there is a normal amount of conflict that happens between relationships, you know, wherever we are. And it's the ability to handle it graciously and the ability to stay curious and the ability to actually have those conversations that allows that conflict to kind of move us into a healthier space. And I think too, and I'm wondering about this, but I feel like there's certain techniques that allow you to have those types of communications like in your toolbox, you know, like nonviolent communication or like I really love the complete communication wheel, but frameworks to where if you're nervous about those conversations, you have like these this step-by-step guide of like, here's how I say what I need to say without bringing, you know, the judgment and the emotion into it in an unhealthy way. Have you advised or anybody to use something like that? Or do you use one of those frameworks yourself? I don't really have a framework. Honestly, I, I sort of go by the spirit of Kim Scott's book, which is that the most important thing you can do is approach the conversation with your heart in the right place, which is that your intention going in needs to be about strengthening your relationship with the other person. And you have to be having the conversation because you care deeply about them and you value them and you respect them. And I think if you go in with that perspective and you go in with the objective of, hey, I want to come out of this conversation with my relationship being even better than it is was when I went in, you kind of can't go wrong, right? Or at least you will have done your part and have, you know, nothing to look back on with regrets. I think it's when we go in wanting to like score points or be right or make somebody else feel bad. That's like, it doesn't matter what frameworks you use. If that's your goal, it's not going to go well. And so it's all about intentionality going into the conversation. Oh, that's so true. And yeah, intentionality on both parts, right? Like I'm going to assume good intent on your end and I'm going to approach it with good intent end as well. Yeah, it takes two, right? (laughs) Yes, indeed, indeed. And those are high pressure. And, you know, speaking of high pressure, like I always love to talk to marketing leaders because not only is it all of the practical or tactical things that you're doing and making sure that, okay, we have the programs in place, we're marching towards our revenue goals, wrangling the team and and helping them kind of accomplish these things. That is a lot of pressure. And then on top of that, you also have this seat at the executive table where you have to go sort of shield your team in a way and also give information, get information. And then there's even the next level of the board and sometimes even the next level with the VCs. So how do you handle all of the pressure that is that is all of that, especially in like very high stakes situations? Oh, man, I, I don't know that I have a great answer for this because I think this is the thing that every leader I know struggles with. And in fact, I just shared something about this on LinkedIn where every leader I know, honestly, I think has imposter syndrome at some level. And in some cases, it's like the more accomplished they are, the worse it is. And it's because the spotlight is so on you and the pressure's on, the expectations are high, the consequences of failure are really great, not just for you, but for all the people that report to you. Like there's just a lot tangled up in that. And so I wouldn't say I've solved this, but the things that I'm working on on myself are taking the emotion out of it, right? When I am in a high pressure situation, the hardest thing for me to to learn, and I'm still working on it in my career, has been to like just release the pressure, take the emotion out of the situation, and try to take a more dispassionate approach. And 
you know, there are a variety of ways to do that. Coming to conversations with as much data as possible is helpful so that it's less of an opinions thing. I tend to be an over-preparer because I get stressed if I enter difficult or high-pressure conversations and I don't feel like I have answers. Mm-hmm. And so those two things are helpful. But then I think it's all the mental health things that we can all be doing just for any source of pressure. Like I'm a huge fan of the five-minute journal. I write in it every morning and every night. And I think the most powerful thing about that is starting and ending every day with documenting the things you're grateful for. Because if you keep the small things that you have to be grateful for in your daily life top of mind, then when you get into a stressful work situation, you can have the perspective to know that like, this isn't the most important thing in my life. You know, there's other things, the health of my family, my two dogs that love to come and nuzzle me every morning, the beautiful weather outside. Like there's all these other things that I have to be grateful for that are positives to provide perspective for the stress. And so there's that, there's things like meditation. I think when I've been in my highest pressure situations with work, the one thing or the two things I try to really remind myself of are number one, exercise Mm -hmm. every day if possible, because that gets your head in a good space. And number two, Honestly, it's like, don't drink. <laughs> I think we, we as, as a society can tend when we get into high pressure situations to like, to forget all those good habits and to, to turn to things like alcohol or other things to, to ease our stress. And it just fuels it and it makes it so much worse. So it's like, get a good night's sleep, get some exercise, don't drink, eat healthy, journal. <laughs> and like, and if that doesn't work, then Oh, well, (laughs) (laughs) you'll find your thing. But okay, you said so many things that I want to dig into. And I do agree, like when we turn to stimulants and things like alcohol, which are more obviously like depressants, it's like it just numbs you, you know, and it does also change your brain chemistry. So it, it makes sense that it's like the easy thing to cling on to when things are not going so well. But the truth is, is that you can find that same sort of sense of relief or calmness or peace or kind of like letting go on your own. You just have to, you have to do it. You have to spend the time to, as you're saying, meditate, exercise, go to bed early, do the five minute journal. And it, I know that that can be so challenging for people to not only start doing that, but then build that as a habit and do it consistently to where they don't say, oh, you know what, like, screw this, this isn't working. I'm just going to have a drink. (laughs) Yeah, it's about good routines and, and sticking with those routines and knowing and like some cases, it is just if you just keep doing your routine, everything falls into place. It's when you allow yourself to start let to let that erode that things get difficult. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You said something interesting too, and you talked about taking the emotion out of, you know, those conversations, which I always find this so fascinating because when we think about decision making, our emotions, and a lot of people don't like this statistic, but it's true. Our emotions or our decisions rather are like, I think it's like 70% driven by emotional factors versus rational factors. So it's always so interesting to me because you can take the emotion out of a dis- of a conversation, but you can't take it out of a decision because your brain is just sort of automatically going to be doing that. But I think what you say about then pairing it with mental health allows you to actually understand your emotions and get close to your emotions and your thoughts and actually kind of separate everything a little bit more and be more objective about it. 
So then when you are going into those conversations, like, yes, I know that emotionally, there are going to be factors that drive this decision and are based on my emotions. However, I don't have to play into those emotions. I don't have to like express those emotions. I don't have to let them overcome me. And I think in order to do that, like you have to do the things that you are talking about in terms of staying healthy and mental health. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think a big piece of it is also recognizing that when you're in a high pressure situation, your emotions do have an effect on other people's emotions. And so the reason I say take emotions out of it is generally in high pressure situations, when emotion comes into it, it's not a positive or healthy emotion. It's like a sense of anxiety or it can feel like a sense of pressure, like you're pressuring somebody else to make a decision or you're so passionate that you make them feel like they're being attacked or that they're wrong. And I think people pick up on that. It's the same thing with leadership. Like, and it's the same thing with parenting. Like Mm -hmm. your kids take their cues from you and your emotions. So if you exude a sense of calm, so will they. And I think it's the same thing in high pressure situations where if you can remain calm and dispassionate and take the strong emotions out of it, then the, the person on the other end, on the receiving end, will also be calm. And when you're calm, you're more open to hearing. And I think that's really why, where that comes from is like, I'm a person who can get really passionate about things. I care deeply about a lot of things. And don't get me wrong, this has been really difficult for me to master. But I've learned that the times when I'm able to like take a deep breath and slow down and try not to put my too much of my own self into the things I'm saying and to just have it be about the circumstance, the challenge, the discussion, that's when I'm the most effective. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, I, I used to tell my kids when they were little, do you want to be right or do you want to get what you want? And emotion is usually about being right and taking the emotion out of it is about getting what you want or what is right. Mm, yes, I love that. And There's so many techniques, too, that you can do in the moment of bringing yourself to that place where you can enter into a situation and you can be more objective and, you know, even acknowledge your emotions, but say, I'm not going to let that come into this room, right? Like, we'll deal with this later. We'll release some of that later in the best way that works and honors you. But yeah, like there's some really cool tricks that you can do, like, even thinking about the physiological sigh, like the physiological sigh literally helps you calm everything down. Like it resets your nervous system in 30 seconds. Like going into a meeting that is high pressure, high stakes, doing a physiological sigh before you do that can save you so much conflict, so much like, you know, butting heads and just bringing that emotion into the room where you just stay relaxed, you stay calm and you are more open, you are more receptive and curious. And you could have a fruitful conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Breath work is incredibly impactful, I will say. And I agree with you because there are times when my husband will laugh at me. He'll just hear me be like, oh, I'll be like, what's going on? And I'm like, nothing, just clearing it all out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Clearing it all out, whatever it is. Yes, I do the same thing. So I'm neurodivergent. And before I found out that I was neurodivergent, I I was aware that I did that, like a lot of sighing, a lot of like vocal stimming. And people would always be like, what's the matter? What's wrong? And I'm like, nothing's wrong. It's what my body needs to do. And then when I learned that I was neurodivergent, I started kind of going through the process of understanding stimming 
And it's literally your body regulating your nervous system. So now that I know that that's what I'm doing, I lean into it more and in safe spaces, you know, with my partner, I can always say, hey, nothing's wrong. I literally am just kind of letting go of emotion, regulating my nervous system. But it's really fascinating that our bodies will do a lot of that naturally. And I think if you are neurodivergent or if you have any sort of like brain differences, your body does it a little bit more frequently and a little bit more visibly. So there's a lot to learn there. I think about just the way that our nervous system works and how those things can actually be very, very helpful. Yeah. And I would just add, that's one of the things you also learn when you learn to meditate, which I didn't Mm -hmm. fully appreciate like before I knew how to meditate. And one of the biggest things I learned was like how to breathe in order to really stabilize myself. And it's little things like understanding, like you should really breathe with your belly and let it expand and contract until you're taught that we spend so much of our lives with all of our bodies just clenched. And you don't even realize like how clenched you are until until someone says, let me see your belly rise and fall. And you're like, oh, wait, I got to relearn how to breathe right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's so true. Okay. So instead of pavilions, CMO school? Can we do like a pavilion, learn how to regulate nervous system and stress <laughs> and mental health school? <laughs> I bet we could all use it. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Okay, moving on back to some stories around your leadership journey. I'm curious, just because as a leader, as anybody, but especially as a leader, like you always encounter failure, setbacks, you know, it's just inevitable, right? Can you share an experience where you felt that failure and you bounced back and you learned some lessons from it? Yeah. I mean, it goes back to what we said earlier about ruinous empathy and firing. When I owned my agency, there was a time when we were growing pretty quickly and I had an employee going out on maternity leave and I knew I needed to backfill her. And I decided to hire two people based on the fact that at that point we were growing and I was like, by the time she comes back, we'll have continued to grow and we'll have like the two people I'm hiring, I'll have a place for them. So they were great. I hired these awesome two people. And when they came on, one of them had just been fired recently, unexpectedly from another job. And she was like, I have a little bit of PTSD, you know? And I was like, Hey, if I'm going to let you go, you're going to see it coming upfront about things. Kind of like I told you earlier, like I really try to be upfront about things. And what happened was this was like in, in the summer and then that fall, we didn't grow as quickly as I thought we were going to. And in fact, we lost a couple of key clients and I started to really see the financial writing on the wall. And I think I failed on two levels. One, we really didn't have like kind of a open book sort of management style at that point where we were communicating our financial performance as clearly as we should have been. And... I knew I was getting ahead of my skis in terms of what we were spending versus, you know, what we were taking in. And this was like, it was before the holidays. And I just remember feeling like, oh my God, we need to win a few more clients because we're getting into a precarious situation. And I let it go on way too long because I really liked these two people. They were great marketers. I didn't want to have to let them go. I didn't tell them anything about this. And then over the Christmas holidays, when we were on break, my husband and I sat down and, and he was my business partner and we really looked at our finances and came to the realization like, we just can't, we can't keep going. And so it was like January two, we came back and the first conversation I had with both of them was, I'm letting you go. And I really, I failed on two levels. Number one, neither one of them saw it coming, which was terrible. That should never be the case. And number two, I hadn't let my team in to understand what our financial performance was. And so 
I actually, a few weeks later, one of my longstanding employees, who I am extremely close friends with to this day, left the company to go somewhere else because I didn't know it at the time, but she was pregnant. And her husband was like, we need financial stability. So I need you to go find a job someplace where we're going to be assured that you're not going to lose it with us having a baby soon. And it was because she didn't have good insight into our finances. And so the two lessons I really learned coming out of that were number one, have those hard conversations, even though they're hard, like you got to talk about it early and often. And number two, I am now a big fan of open book management for this reason. So that I think even though we were having financial difficulties, I think the the last person would have stayed if she had a better sense of what our performance was. Yeah, that transparency is so huge. And, and, and that helps too, I think, from the sense of my team knows what I'm looking at and what I'm concerned about. And they also then know what to bring to me. They're better at prioritizing when they have all of that information. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, those are some good lessons to learn. And and so now moving forward, you're focused on that open book management style and then thinking about like setting up employees for success when you don't know what's going to happen, right? Like there's a million things that could happen that could cause a shift in the organization and the need to restructure. So what are the things that you put in place or, you know, the processes that you have now in order to make sure that the people that maybe would stay if they had a little bit more info, you can kind of hold on to them and and communicate well with them. Yeah, well, back then it was my company that I owned. And so I did change how we reported and I started to show our financials to the team on a regular basis. Now I work for somebody else and I'm really lucky that Sam at Pavilion is very much a believer in open book management as well. And so that's one of the reasons I really like working here because I feel like I'm very aligned with him on that. And We're able to share with the team every week what our revenue performance is, what our churn is, and we're always working to share more. And then in terms of having those conversations, you know, it's it taught me a lot about just regularly checking in with people and meeting with them and being honest about where things stand. And if they're well, if they're not performing, which wasn't the issue with those two people, to tell them up front and to be really clear about what they need to do to to address that situation and what the outcomes will be if they don't. But then if it, you know. If it's people who might lose their job, this is where it gets tough, obviously, because there's legal implications, but to the extent possible, to try to give people a sense of what's coming. It's not always possible, unfortunately. I'd love to say it is, but the situation I had back then, I could have said something and I just didn't because I was too much of a coward. So mm-hmm. yeah, recognizing the times when, okay, is it possible for me to do it and what will it take versus yeah. it's just not possible. So then how do I approach it? Yeah. And I think you said something really interesting too about, you know, Sam being on the same page as you in terms of that transparency and open book management. I think that that's something that sometimes is overlooked. You see all the time people interviewing and they love the manager or they love like, you know, this person, this person, this person, but then they discover, well, that wasn't actually a collective philosophy. That was an individual philosophy. And there are actually penalizations or implications then by adopting this individual philosophy without like the whole collective being that way. Because if the company is not in a sense transparent at all levels and it's just that one person, well, 
you can only get so far before you get disappointed. So I think when you're interviewing, you know, asking those important questions that go outside of the individual manager or leader that you're going to be working with, but up all the way to the top. I ask about the board. I ask about the VCs. What does that transparency level look like all the way at all levels? So you understand collectively what that message is going to be. Yeah, it's you have to have a good question set. (laughs) That's something I've worked on over the years is building out my interview question set of like, if I'm applying for a job, you know, I approach it as like I'm interviewing them just as much as they're interviewing me and getting those answers from a variety of people is important Mm -hmm. because that helps you kind of triangulate on what the reality is. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we're going to play lead or leave. I'm going to present a couple situations and you can decide whether you would lead in that situation or you would need to step back and, you know, maybe not leave the company, but like say, I'm not doing that. (laughs) All right, you ready? I'm ready. Okay, the first one is... Scheduling an impromptu roast the boss event to show your team you can laugh at yourself. Oh, lead. I love that. (laughs) Okay, your company's biggest competitor releases an eerily similar product to yours and your team looks to you to guide the marketing response strategy. Lead. I feel like that's easy to be knee-jerk, reactive, and scared in those situations. But I think those are perfect moments that illustrate like why it's necessary to be calm and take the emotion out of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, your company is considering outsourcing a significant portion of its workforce to cut costs, potentially impacting the job security and morale of your current employees. I have already led through that. <laughs> it's not easy, it's not pleasant, it's not fun for anybody, but these are things that like, if you're gonna be in leadership positions, you have to be prepared to do. Mm. And this is why I love this game is because it brings out like actual stories and situations that people have had to do. What was the biggest takeaway from that experience? You know, I've had to do it a couple times. And I think the biggest takeaway is like be direct, be get right to the point. Like when you have to lay somebody off, the worst thing you can do is get on the in this day and age, it's all remote. At least it has been for years for me. The worst thing you can do is get on and be like, how you doing? What's going on? Like to beat around the bush. It has to be like, hi, unfortunately, today's your last day. You have to go right to it and to not try to bring yourself into it. Like, I feel bad. It doesn't matter how I feel. Like it has to be about that person. And then it has to be about doing everything in your power as the leader who has managed that person to help them successfully land on their feet and transition. Mm, Yeah, good insight for sure. Okay, here's another one. Your star employee gets an offer from a rival company but will stay for a significant salary raise which could strain your budget. I guess lead, but the answer is, I don't know that I would do it. (laughs) It depends, and I've been in this situation as well. It depends on a couple of factors, one, how much of a star is that person? You know, can are they replaceable? Do they truly want to stay or are they just out for the most money? If they're just out for the most money, I wouldn't do it because then somebody else could offer them more tomorrow and they'd be gone. And I think, am, am I underpaying them? This is a market telling me that I should correct my level of pay, in which case I absolutely would match it. And then the last one is like, are they committed to staying? Because we had this situation recently And I said to the person, like, if you're willing to stay here for a year, 
I'm willing to invest in you, but if you're gonna leave in three weeks because somebody else offers you more money, I'm not interested. Okay, here's the last one. The board pressures you to use a controversial marketing tactic that promises immediate returns, but could harm the brand in the long term. Probably leave. I'm a little stubborn like that. <laughs> I mean, and if those were the only two choices, I think I'd probably push back on the board is really the real answer. But if they were like, do it or, or don't be here, I might just walk. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard. I love these questions because there always is like a, well, but, yeah, you know, that's why I always give people the chance to justify, tell stories because there's lessons that come out of that. There's a real life experience that people have actually gone through when we go through this leader leave challenge where it's like, yeah, I have had to challenge the board and it and it's hard, but you got to do it. You got to roll up your sleeves and and walk into that room virtual or live and be prepared to stand up for what you believe in. And and then maybe you leave or not. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I want to talk a little bit about Pavilion and so many great programs that you have, such an amazing community that has been built. How many members are there now? Over 10,000. Wow. That's amazing. Congratulations on that. Yeah. It's, it's incredible how it's grown, especially through COVID. It grew quite a bit. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it's communities in general, I feel like have grown exponentially. And I think people are just really starting to lean into the value of connecting with others and building relationships and having those like self-directed places that they can go and learn and have good conversations. And even like from a referral standpoint, I don't need to go Google. What am I going to lean into more is probably people from the community that are giving me real life examples of what they've done and what tools they've used or what vendors they've used. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been incredible. I mean, it's, I've been fond of saying recently community is the new Google because I used to own an inbound marketing agency and we always used to say, what happens when somebody has a problem? Well, they go to Google and they look for an answer. And that's really not the first source of solution these days. The first source of solution is to go to your community of peers. And that might be Pavilion or it might be LinkedIn or some other group, but people go to their peers and ask, like, how do you solve this? What are your recommendations? Because it's faster. It's more reliable. It's a better way of solving things. And then we might go to Google, but we're typing in the names of the things people told us. We're bypassing the old organic search and we're doing branded search and going right to somebody's website. And so in this day and age, if you don't have a presence in communities, if you're not a part of the conversation, you miss out on at-bats. Absolutely. So being in this community of 10,000 members, and I know that it's sort of a split between existing leaders and emerging leaders. What do you see in the community as people raising as the number one challenge for leaders out there? Oh boy. I mean, it does vary depending upon level, but I would say there's a couple things right now. I'm gonna I'm I'm not gonna be able to name a number one. I would I'll give you a top three. One of them is just the job market. I think a lot of people in leadership roles are losing their jobs right now. And it's hard. It's hard to find a new role. So you see a lot of people who've been successful VPs of marketing or CMOs or, you know, CROs or heads of sales, and they're going fractional because they don't have a choice at the moment. And so it's tough. I feel for anybody who's looking for a job right now, especially at that level, it's a little bit easier if you're not in a CXO or a leadership position, but it's hard across the board. So that's number one. Number two, I think is just 
the pressure to do more with less. It's not fair, but it's the reality, right? Like it just is what it is. And I think everybody is sort of scrambling with like, we have a smaller team, we might have a smaller budget, but nobody's expectations have been reduced. So what's working right now? What's the best bang for the buck? Those are a lot of the conversations we hear. And then I think the last thing is just an overarching sense of lack of balance or burnout. And we talk about this a lot internally, the notion of burnout. And I, I, you know, it exists within our team too. And I think burnout is, it can come from a lot of different things. It can, it can come just from plain, simple working too hard and too many hours. But I also think, you know, because there's times in your life when you work a lot of hours, but you don't feel burnt out. And that tends to happen if you're like winning and you're getting amazing results and you're feeding off of that and you're excited. And obviously, if you love the work you're doing. And so when I think about solving burnout, it's like telling people like you need to think about what work do you love? What work is going to make you feel like you're making a difference? And how can you find a balance in terms of the amount of work you're doing that's healthy for you? And for some people, that means working 40 hours a week. For some people, that means working 60 hours a week, you know, but they love it. And so it's very individual, but I think that's a big theme I hear a lot about these days. Yeah, same here on the coaching side is is honestly those three things as well from leaders in all positions as well as emerging leaders. And burnout is a one that's like very near and dear to my heart. I mean, I think most of us have experienced burnout. And I just think I, I would love us to move into a space where we talk about burnout differently, right? Like doing more things like delegating and managing up and like those things don't cure or fix burnout, but burnout is is actually happening inside of your nervous system. And it's something where you you really need to step away and you need to heal your nervous system. You need to rest. You need to fix the systems or regulate the systems inside your body and then step back in. So I feel like the biggest gift that organizations can give to people that are experiencing burnout is just that flexibility, just that time to rest, reset your nervous system and then come back when you actually have the capacity in your brain, literally, to take on the decision making, take on the delegation, take on the all of the things that it it requires in terms of managing up. But yeah, I feel like I would love for us to get to a place where organizations are talking about burnout from that very brain-based perspective around what's happening in your body versus here's all the surface solutions out there to, you know, fix burnout. Well, and and not only like how to fix it within your body, but how to really trace back the source of it because I do think it's easy to be like, I'm burnt out because I'm working too much. Mm -hmm. But that's not really the thing that necessarily causes burnout. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I said, there are some people that just work all the time and they're so happy and they love it. So it's not the volume of work itself. It's the volume of work in combination with something else, whether it's that you don't enjoy the work itself or that you don't feel like the work you're doing is impactful or meaningful, or it's the people that you work with, like there's usually a secondary factor that's triggering the amount of work to be the thing that is the problem. Absolutely. Yeah. There's always those external factors too that are going on. I have been very intentional around around helping myself and then also helping others via coaching of 
Like, what are those red flags? What are those things that you need to look out for? Those behaviors that start happening that you can identify. So instead of like being at burnout and saying, oh, hello, all of a sudden, burnout, nice to see you again. You are seeing it from a distance and you say, okay, I know exactly what I need to do. I'm seeing burnout is coming. So I need to stop and pause, get out my toolkit and do those things. So actually building that toolkit, building those red flags for yourself to see like when burnout is coming. And I think you're right. The passion is it plays a huge part of it. Are you really loving what you're doing? A lot of people do things that they're just good at and they might like it because they have an impact or whatever, but finding that combination, I think can be really, really powerful. Yeah, because you can actually not be working a lot and still be burnt out if you don't like your work. So yeah, it's an interesting topic. Totally. And that's the other thing too, is people who do work a lot more hours, it's not the time, right? It's the energy that you put in. And if you learn how to manage your energy, if you learn how to manage your productivity cycles, if you learn how to prioritize all of those things, then like you can work a pretty hefty week and feel good. But you know, you have to learn how to manage all of those things. I work in sprints, for example. Sometimes I'll push myself like one week on and work pretty loaded hours, but I'm very intentional about the way that I manage my energy and my productivity cycles. I bring out all my tools for that week. And then I have two weeks where I sit back a little bit. I have more focus time. I have less meetings. And I know that doing that works for me, but it's different for everybody. That's so true. Yeah. Okay. So these three things, the challenges of the job market, the challenges of doing more with less, the challenges of balance and burnout, what kinds of things are is Pavilion or does Pavilion have in place to support those challenges today? I mean, I honestly, the number one thing is just community. And it sounds very simple to say, but if you think about it, you know, if you've lost your job or you're looking for your next role, because there are also people who are in roles that they don't like and they're looking for another one, you can certainly go out and cold apply to jobs that are listed on LinkedIn, but Everyone I'm talking to who's finding roles, it's all coming through warm introductions. And so having that community support system of people that you can go to and say, here's what I want to do. And they step up and they make these introductions. And then we also have a program called On the Bench, which is truly amazing. It's really one of the best things I think we do as an organization. And it's it's a community within the community for people looking for their next role. And we have a man, Fred Mather, who moderates it. And he's amazing. He's an executive coach. And they bring in speakers every week to talk to these people. And it's about everything from like hearing from board members on how they assess candidates to hearing from resume coaches to Fred teaching people about how to negotiate the right equity package. It's really unbelievable. And we have, they also have access to a legal hotline and other kinds of resources as well as a jobs board. So when you're unemployed, it's one of the scariest times in your life, unless you're independently wealthy, <laughs> you know, it's very scary. And so having a support system that you know is there for you, not only to set you up for success in your job search, but to cheer you on as you do it, I think is tremendously empowering. So, you know, that aspect of community is really important, but also when it comes to things like burnout and doing more with less, it's a place where you can go and you can share these challenges and feel less alone and crowdsource answers and hear how other people are solving things. It's just, I always say community is a cheat code. 
It's like in video gaming, you have cheat codes that allow you to do things that otherwise wouldn't be possible within the rules of the game. And with community, it's the same thing. Like to be able to go in and say to a virtual room full of other CMOs, how are you handling burnout? We all have it. What's working for you? And to have some of the most accomplished CMOs in the B2B tech world chime in and say, this is what I'm doing. That's so special and so unique and so powerful. Mm, yeah. Well, that first one sounds like a fantastic program. And I completely agree of just being able to go out and hear what other people are doing. And in coaching, this happens all the time where it's, you know, I always believe everyone has their own answers. You can design your own solutions. We sometimes forget that. But what is so helpful is if you admire somebody, if somebody's been there before you, if there's somebody out there that's doing what you want to do, go see what they're doing. And you don't have to do it for yourself. And it's better than them telling you, hey, here's what you should do. It's nice because you're observing. You say, I'm asking, I'm soliciting this answer. And tell me what you're doing. I just am curious. I want to see what's, how other successful people in your shoes handle this. And then you get all of these ideas and you get to take what resonates and you can leave the rest. And it's a great way to build your own personal toolkit for a variety of things, but especially around like the mental health, burnout balance, and obviously the more tactical things too, when it comes to marketing, I think it's such a great strategy. Yeah. There's also something very empowering about sharing what you know, because communities are about give and get. And it's funny, I'm sitting here in front of Sam's book, Kind Folks Finish First. Oh, I was wondering, I was trying to see, I'm like, what books does she have back Yeah, there's Ogilvy on advertising behind it. But I mean, the whole Pavilion community was founded on the notion that you will be most successful in life if you give with no expectation of receiving back. And so while communities are, are really helpful for helping you problem solve, there's also something very, very fulfilling about helping other people for the sake of doing it. And I think one of the benefits you get from that is recognizing that you do have value to share, right? Because I talked about imposter syndrome earlier. It's very lonely to be in these roles sometimes. And, you know, we live in our own bubbles and you can come into a community and think, oh my gosh, I'm surrounded by all these successful people. What do I know? But all of a sudden, when people start asking questions, you realize, wait, I know a lot. I know some of these answers and I can help other people. And that builds confidence and it builds sureness in yourself. And it's a great reminder that you come with your own value and you have something to give and to offer. Mm, that is a powerful message. We all have our own perspectives and experiences. And that in itself is like sacred knowledge that we don't even realize. That's very, very powerful. Okay. Well, thank you for being here and giving so much advice and telling your stories and just sharing what you're seeing out there. I really appreciate you and your time and what you're doing with Pavilion. As a way to kind of close things down for the conversation, are there any experiences, exercises, other resources that you would recommend for emerging executives that are really looking to enhance their growth? Sure. So number one, certainly go out and buy Kim Scott's Radical Candor. We talked a lot about that. But and and I'm going to be a little selfish here. I mean, I think check out Pavilion. And I say this as somebody who joined and was a member for three years before she worked at the company. And I the reason I chose to work there is because it was so impactful on my career. And it is find yourself a community. And Pavilion is one. It's so powerful. It's such a great way to 
speed up your learning, to build your network. You know, in addition to the community, we have Pavilion University where we have courses you mentioned earlier, like CMO school. I just finished this morning teaching the first class of marketing school on how to set marketing goals. There's so many resources available to you. You do not have to go it alone. I think that's the number one thing is you just don't have to do it on your own. Yep. You don't have to go it alone. Go find your community, as Kathleen says, and Pavilion is a great one. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you again so much for being on. I appreciate you sharing, and I can't wait to see what goes on with Pavilion and the continued growth and how you are leading that helm. This was a ton of fun. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. I hope you walk away with something empowering that you can take into your own leadership journey. Are you a high-performing executive looking to take your career to the next level? Or maybe you're an emerging leader who wants to develop the skills you need to advance in your role and show up authentically. Or maybe you're experiencing burnout and struggling to find a better work-life balance. Whatever your situation is, one-on-one coaching can help you achieve your personal and professional goals. If you're interested in experiencing the power of coaching for yourself, head on over to hypehousecoaching.com backslash start coaching now, where you can set up a one-on-one leadership and executive coaching intro session for free. Remember, the only hype that really matters is the hype within.